0: Children can be dismissed for Children's Church as we prepare for the Word. Good morning. Well, as you know, we've been going through the Gospel of John at breakneck speed. We're about halfway done, and what has it been now? Maybe a little over a year. Got about another year to go on John. Um, well, at least at this pace. But I have some good news this morning. Um, Pastor Silvernail is out on uh, vacation. That's not the good news. Uh, but since he's out on vacation, I thought we'd do him a favor and catch up a little bit. So by the end of the uh, by the end of this, we should be around chapter 19 or 20 or so. The bad news is you're going to have to stick around till 4, so I'm sorry. Actually, instead, uh, why don't we just read from uh, John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. This is probably my favorite gospel story. Uh, by the way, you will need to have your Bibles at the ready. If you notice, the note sheet in there is blank on both sides, because I forgot to didn't have time to get notes in there. So uh, keep your Bibles at the ready and, uh, um, and follow along. Uh, John 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt." At first, his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I have got to pray before we start. <clears throat> Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, Please let these words not be mine, but yours. I pray that you would bless this time and bless the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. He's coming. Have you seen him? I heard he'll be here soon. What does he look like? Will we be able to recognize him? Tell me if you see him. These are good questions. And when it comes to Jesus, there have been many good answers over the course of history. I found a few examples online. The Anabaptist prophet, in quotes, prophet, Melchior Hoffman, said that Christ will return in 1533 in Strasbourg, Germany, of all places. One of the very first Presbyterians, Christopher Love, declared that God's anger against the wicked would be demonstrated on 1759. October 22nd, 1844, we'll see the return of Jesus Christ according to the Millerites. Even Pat Robertson got in on the fun and announced that the world would end in 1982. Then again, 1988 would be the year of the rapture, according to Hal Lindsey in the late great planet Earth. Evangelist Marilyn Aggie declared that the rapture would take place on May 31st, 1998. It's a good thing that wasn't the date. I'm pretty sure I was busy that day. It kind of makes you want to do this. You know, rapture practice. Um, There's more. Gene DeRoger predicted the world would come to an end in the year 2000. Pretty much everybody else did that, too. And then there is the ever-dreaded June 6, 2006. Six, six, six. The date predicted by some because it's the number of the beast. However, my all-time favorite, absolute all-time favorite, is the booklet by Edgar Weisenant, "88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988." In the spring of 1988, this 56-page booklet was mass distributed across America. Thank you. I'll set it here. This ma- uh, it was mass distributed across America, concluding that the rapture would occur. Brace yourselves, between September 11th and September 13th, 1988. Now I don't remember a thing that happened on those dates, so I'm guessing it was pretty uneventful. However, 1989 was a new year with a new book with new predictions from Wisenant. With it was called the. Uh, The final shout, rapture report, 1989. With the first chapter, what went wrong in 1988 and why? He explains, my mistake was that my mathematical calculations were off by one year. The miscalculation was so simple, perhaps the reason I did not see my error was God's will. Wow, blame it on God, that always works. (laughs) he then goes on to reveal the new date, September 1st, 1989. He claims, as the most likely time for the rapture, plus or minus one day. In a chart depicting everything from the exact day of the Battle of Armageddon to the Great White Throne of Judgment, Weisenart provides a precise, detailed timeline of these events. Should, did he just say should? Should the rapture be in 1989? Wow. Yes, he hedged To hedge his bets, he concludes the following statement. If September 1st, 1989 comes and goes and there is no rapture, then the next day we should look for would be September 30th, 1989. If that day passes and the rapture still does not occur, I believe we have to move the whole sequence of events forward another year to Rosh Hashanah, 1990. You gotta love this guy. There is something inside all of us that wants to know not only how Jesus will come, but when. The Jews of Jesus' time were no strangers to this. There were many predictions that the time of Messiah was near and that their Messiah would deliver them from Roman oppression. You can imagine, then, the excitement as this Passover feast approached. Many had just seen Jesus of Nazareth raise Lazarus from the grave with the command of his voice. The resurrection of the dead was a sure sign that Messiah had come. Word had spread fast and all the more because it was Passover and hundreds of thousands of Jews were descending on Jerusalem. They could see Lazarus for themselves and they could see his empty tomb. It made sense. It could only mean one thing He's here. He's here. John records the dialogue like this When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? I can imagine some of the out-of-towners saying, do you know what he looks like? Will you recognize him? Tell me if you see him. The Jews had been preparing for Messiah. Perhaps this was the time, and yet they missed him. Here in this passage, we see them singing Hosannas on Sunday, and by Friday, they cry, Crucify him. So, what went wrong? God had given them everything they needed to know in order to recognize him. Just look at the signs. First, there was the place, the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple in Jerusalem. In the book of Zechariah, the Mount of Olives is identified as the place where God will redeem the dead at the end of days. For this reason, Jews have sought to be buried. On the mountain. There are an estimated 150 graves on the mount. Even Zechariah himself is buried there. Zechariah prophesied, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies before Jerusalem on the east. That's Zechariah 14.4. Everyone knew That the Mount of Olives was a special place. And yet, they missed him. John says in our passage today that Jesus found a donkey and sat upon it. Another sign. It was not uncommon for a king to ride a donkey as a symbol of peace. And Jesus' choice of transportation was not by coincidence, he again was fulfilling prophecy. It wasn't until later that John and the other disciples came across this passage in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Gentle on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And yet they missed him. Now, they must have recognized him somewhat. The palms were the acknowledgement by this crowd that their king was here. They were sure it was him. Palm branches had been used in ceremonies and celebrations for almost 200 years prior to this event. They were considered a symbol of patriotism and nationalism, much of what Israel needed at this time. As he rode that colt down the mount, we hear the Hosanna cry. It means, save, please, or bring salvation now. And is actually known as the Conqueror's Psalm. It's the one sung for Judas Maccabeus when he entered the city and liberated it. It comes from Psalm 118. It's the one we did today for uh, the responsive reading. Oh Lord, save us, or Hosanna. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. We bless you. And the crowd added their acknowledgement that he is the king of Israel. So why why were they shouting such things? Well, more prophecy is fulfilled here. Remember, Zechariah said, shout, O daughter of Israel. And such a shout must be made. In the other Gospels, Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees, and they told him to quiet the crowd. Jesus declared that if the multitudes had failed to shout, the prophecy would still be fulfilled. Do you remember how? The rocks would cry out. These shouts of Hosanna and the palm branches waved was an indication that they were expecting their king to rule over Jerusalem. They were expecting him to save them from Rome, not from their sins. So they missed him. There's one piece of symbolism that I find striking. And yet it goes unmentioned in all the Gospels. It is the matter of where Jesus entered the city. Since we don't read it in the Gospels, we don't actually know for sure. But the closest gate From the Mount of Olives is the East Gate. Go ahead and put it up there. There we go. Okay, take a look. This is the wall on Jerusalem facing east. You see the dome on the rock, the most holy place of Islam, right there in the background. To the right, you see a gate. It has two arches. It's called the East Gate, or also called the Beautiful Gate, or even sometimes the Golden Gate. Where the Dome of the Rock sits now, about there or maybe a little bit to the right, that was where the temple stood. When you enter through it, you have entered the temple court. This gate has a long and glorious history. Ezekiel was brought to this gate in his visions while they were exiled in Babylon. He was brought to this gate to witness the glory of God. God's Shekinah glory, entering and exiting the temple through the east gate. It is a very special gate. Let me read what Ezekiel says. This is Ezekiel 43, 1-4. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River. And I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east, Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Go ahead and hit the slide. This is the east gate, and God is again passing through. Only this time on a donkey. I have to say that as I prepared this sermon, I wanted to do what Ezekiel did, and I fell face down. If the Jews had fully grasped that what was taking place, that God was entering his temple, they might not have been waving palm branches. Maybe they too would have prostrated themselves in front of their Savior. Now take a close look at this picture. Take a close look at that gate. What is wrong with this gate? Can you see? There's something wrong with it. What should you be able to do with a gate? Pass through the gate. That's right, it's sealed shut. Remember that the temple is no longer on the other side of that gate. Well, the Muslims have occupied the Temple Mount since about 600 A.D. Sometime between 1520 and 1566, a Muslim ruler, Suleiman the Magnificent, reigned the Ottoman Empire. The gate was sealed during that time. The reason is intriguing. Suleiman knew that Jewish religious tradition teaches that the coming Messiah will enter Jerusalem through this gate. The Muslims, therefore, sought to prevent his entry. They even take a close look below the gate. They even put a cemetery in front of the gate, thinking that he wouldn't pass through the dead, hoping to prevent his entry. Unfortunately, the Jews had already missed him, so the Muslims were too late. The wild thing about this event is that even this event was fulfilling prophecy. Take a look at Ezekiel 44 1 through 3. Hit the next slide. I have it up here if you want. Psych then the man brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary the one facing east and it was shut the lord said to me this gate is to remain shut it must not be opened no one may enter through it it is to remain shut because the lord the god of israel has entered through it the prince himself is the only one who may sit inside the gateway to eat in the presence of the lord Our God is an awesome God. He's given us an ever-present reminder that he has already been here. John points out that Jesus' disciples were oblivious to any of these signs at the time. It was only later, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were able to recognize any of them. Yet Jesus knew what he was doing. Here he was riding on a donkey, accepting the praises of the crowd, in essence, admitting to the whole world that he was the king of Israel. And yet, they missed him. All of these things, the prophecy, the symbolism, point to one thing. The God of the universe was in their midst, and he had a plan. The crowd was thinking, He'd take over, but instead, he would submit. The greatest symbol of his love was yet to come. This is Passover, and it is time for the Passover lamb to be slain for the atonement of sins. This is the Passover feast. Feasts are a recognition and celebration of God's work in their lives. John points out that Jesus often used feasts as a venue for his message. Remember the wedding feast? Jesus turned water into wine, revealing his glory to his disciples so that they would put their faith in him. At the feast of tabernacles, Jesus shouted, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. At the feast of dedication, Jesus declared, I and the Father are one. And he was nearly stoned for it. And it was at a Passover that Jesus turned over the money tables and drove out the merchants, saying, My house is a house of worship, and you have made it a den of thieves. But this Passover, this one, this is different. Gerald L. Borchert describes it this way. The connection between waving branches and the Hosanna of Psalm 118 should not be missed here. In the Feast of Tabernacles, for instance, the male participants, both men and boys, waved the lulab when the temple singer reached the crescendo of Hosanna. The use of the psalm and its connections with Passover is also well identified in the tractate on Passover in the Mishnah. But what is most intriguing is the irony and the call of the crowd for salvation. It was in this entrance to Jerusalem that Jesus said his hour had come. Indeed, it would be on the cross that Jesus would fulfill the confessional prediction of the Samaritans when they called him the Savior of the world. But the crowd's idea of salvation and their idea of a Messianic Savior was not what John knew this entrance was about. If they had only understood the Messianic implications of an earlier verse in Psalm 118, maybe they would have come to realize that the rejected stone would become the cornerstone. But they did not. They missed him. No wonder the crowd wasted no time turning against him. This can't be Messiah. He should be riding on a horse with swords drawn. He should have taken the city by force by now. With the tip of the spear, he should have conquered the enemy. Wait a minute. He is at Passover. The Passover lamb is here. And with the sword and the spear, he will conquer the enemy. The sword is the word of truth that comes from his mouth, and the spear pierced his side for our sins. Plain and simple, Jesus of Nazareth had heard their Hosanna. Save us. He had come to save them, but they couldn't see past their physical needs for deliverance from the Romans. They expected Him to meet their temporal need. They were so blinded by their own sin that they couldn't see their need to be saved from their sins for all eternity. They couldn't see that every sacrifice offered in the temple from Moses to this very Passover was inadequate for their redemption. Inadequate. They couldn't see that every atonement sacrifice was a foreshadowing of what their Messiah was about to do for them. Perhaps they should have continued reading in Psalm 118 as we did today. If you go back to Psalm 118, you look at verse 27. It follows the Hosanna cry almost right after the Hosanna cry. It says, The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession, up to the horns of the altar. That's how it's translated in the NIV. The English Standard Version says it this way. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Is it possible, like every other prophecy we've read this morning, that the psalmist penned these words for this very moment? It certainly is. When God instructed Israel to build the altar, he said, Make a horn at each of the four corners, so that the horns and the altar are one piece. These horns were used to tie down the atonement sacrifice while it was pierced, killed, and given as a payment for the sins of the nation of Israel. And now the nation of Israel is taking their king to that altar, and they don't realize it. Their king won't strike a blow to Rome. Instead, he will be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. How come they didn't recognize him? How come they missed him? So now the question is for you. Will you recognize him? Jesus provides some advice in Matthew 24, 4 through 7. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Christ. And will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. You will see to it that you are not alarmed. But these things must happen. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Well, there are three things I think we can do to recognize him. First, know him. If you're going to recognize someone, you have to know them. It almost seems obvious. But an expert who is trained to recognize a counterfeit, be it a counterfeit ID or a counterfeit money, they don't spend their time studying the counterfeit. That would be useless. There are too many counterfeits to be an expert in every one. Instead, they spend all their time studying the real thing. They touch it. They crinkle it. They hold it up to the light. They know every and even the smallest telltales and markings that tell you that this is the real thing. That way, when they come across a counterfeit, they notice right away that something's wrong. They don't need to know anything about the counterfeit, just that it isn't the real thing. Those that followed Jesus 2,000 years ago knew him and knew he was the real thing. We read last week that Mary, Lazarus' sister, anointed Jesus. She not only recognized her Messiah, but she knew his mission. By pouring perfume perfume on him, she prepared the Lamb of God for his final days on earth. Perhaps she knew these things because she sat with him, spent time with him, and listened to him. Remember when Mary's sister Martha asked Jesus to tell Mary to get busy in the kitchen? Jesus said, Mary has chosen the better way. Or how about the woman at the well who said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Or her Samaritan friends who declared, this man really is the savior of the world. What about the lame man and the blind man and the tax collector? Or what about the prostitute? What about those to whom he said, your faith has healed you? Paul says in Romans, The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can know him by the abundant measure of grace he has given us. He died for your sins. He had your sins in mind when he rode that donkey down to the gate. If you are like me, those sins are a significant weight on his shoulders. Remember, he had no sin. If you are like me, that means you love him all the more. That's how you know him. He's wearing your burden so you don't have to. If you have, ever, if you have never given your heart to Jesus, it's easy. Just ask the woman in the well. All she did was acknowledge she was a sinner and trusted in the only one who could take away her sins. She believed in Jesus. It will change you forever. And to know him, is to be changed because of him. Now you might, must not just know him. You must keep knowing him. If you were Mary, you would have sat next to him at supper. But he's not here in that way. The only way you can grow in your knowledge of him is to stay in his word and learn more about him. Paul says in Philippians, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In the same letter, Paul warns of false teachers. Those who are not in his word will be easily swayed by false teachers. So stay in the Bible and read every passage as though it pertains to him, because it does. An important part of knowing him is also to put aside your own human expectations of Christ. The Jews of Jesus' time had expectations. They wanted freedom from Roman occupation. Instead of knowing him, they imagined him. Turn that off. And instead of freedom from the Romans, they missed him. And missed out on freedom from their sins. Don't make the same mistake. I want him to find me a new job. I want him to find me a mate. I want him to put a Republican in office. I want him to help me to lose 20 pounds. Well, I could use a little help. I want him to make me happy, whatever that means. If you want to be happy, eternally happy, then don't imagine Jesus. Don't follow the imposter that your mind conjures up. Find out who he really is and follow him wherever he takes you. That is hard that is so hard. So first, we need to know him. Second, we need to serve him. To serve Jesus is to act on the knowledge that you have of him. What good is knowledge if you don't act? James says, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks in the mirror, he looks at his face in the mirror, and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. This is not a doctrine of good works. If you put your trust in him, you have salvation. Instead, this is the evidence and practice of your salvation. Serving the Lord will also help you know him better. But it's actually more about him knowing you. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, puts them into practice. We must serve him. Lastly, to recognize him, we must worship him. In my opinion, this is the romance part of the relationship. The book of Revelation often describes a vivid picture of Christ as the groom and we, the church, as his bride. What a romantic image. What an intimate image that is. My marriage would wither if it were not for the romantic moments that Dawn and I share together. I try not to miss an opportunity to squeeze her hand or give her a kiss. I have to tell you, I'm still in love. In these romantic moments, we acknowledge and appreciate each other. We encourage and lavish praise. We set aside time and pretend that no one else exists but the two of us. I know I'm going to get home today, and she's going to tell me that. And let me know that we could do a little with a little bit more of this, especially this week. Our attitude with Christ should be the same as a couple in love. Because he, we are his bride. So to do this, make Sunday morning the best part of your week. This is hard. Sundays are not usually a day of peace and tranquility in our house. And well, that wasn't too many amens. I must be the only one. Yeah. I remember one day in particular, not too long ago, when things weren't going quite as planned. I'm sure you know what I mean. Breakfast took longer than usual. Everyone seemed to be in some state of undress. And we were getting later, and I was getting in a state of distress. Uh, This is kind of normal. I wouldn't have given it another thought except for one thing that happened that day. I had just bought a new cell phone and it came with one of those new Bluetooth wireless headsets. I was still learning to use it. I had stuck it in my pocket. And while it was in my pocket, it jostled around and it hit a button and it redialed the last phone number. It was one of my clients. Uh, In fact, it happened twice that day. So when I got to work... The person said to me, the first time I heard you yelling at your kids. (laughs) The second time I heard church music. (laughs) I was in trouble. It had hit me right between the eyes. Yes, it is easy to get distracted on Sunday morning and forget what's important. But when the service begins and the music starts, be romantic and pretend like no one else exists but you and the Lord. Sunday's not the only day to worship him. We can do this throughout the week. To do that, become people of prayer. Pray with each other. Pray for each other. Be sure to do more than just ask him for that new job or that mate Be sure to lavish him with praise and thanksgiving. Be sure to search your heart and confess your sins. And probably most of all, listen when you pray. How will you know him if you can't take the time to be quiet and listen to him? Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Sometimes our best prayers have No words. So, do you want to be able to recognize him? Then know him, serve him, and worship him. You don't want to miss him. While the crowd missed their Messiah who came to them on a donkey's colt, rest assured the next time he comes, he will be on a horse, he will conquer the nations. Even though I wouldn't fathom a guess, For the time he is coming like Mr. Weisenhart, I know that Jesus will come in all his glory. Hear what Revelation says about that day. This is Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened up and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. If you are not with him, he will say, I never knew you. So what will you do? Will you just wait and see? Or will you in your exuberance recreate God in your own image and be looking the other way? I mean, there are plenty more dates on the calendar. Maybe you could book them in the spring. Or will you know him, serve him, and worship him? If you choose the latter, you won't be disappointed. Let's pray.